I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, where we will be considering verses 15 and 16 together this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. As we noted earlier in the service, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and in the Lord's providence, our series in Colossians has brought us to this series of verses that is wonderfully fitting for the next four Sundays. So, for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23 here in Colossians chapter 1, and we begin today with verses 15 and 16. So, I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Would you pray with me now as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word? Let's pray. Father, we do give You thanks and praise that You have granted to us this incredible grace to know You through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask now, Father, that our hearts would be united together in this time of listening and reflecting and learning and submitting to the Word of God that You have given to us here in the book of Colossians. Grant us grace, Father, that we might understand what it is that You have revealed. Please give me grace, Father, to keep me from error and to help me to speak things that are true about Christ and true about who You are. And grant us all discernment, Father. We know Your Word tells us that in the last days, many will go astray. Please give us discernment to hold fast to the truth, even as we hear it now from Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I once heard a, a wise Christian man say that you can appreciate the, uh, the importance of any particular doctrine by asking yourself, what would the church lose if this doctrine were untrue? That's an insightful question. What would the church lose, for example, if the Scriptures were not inspired by God? We would lose much. We would lose the knowledge of God, insight for life, truth for growing in holiness, just to name a few things. What would the church lose if there were no physical resurrection of the dead, only a spiritual resurrection? Again, we would lose much, primarily the future hope of life as God meant it to be in a physical world, renewed and freed from sin's curse. You see, it's an insightful question for appreciating biblical truth. What would the church lose if this particular doctrine were not true? So, on this first Sunday of Advent, I ask this question. What would the church lose if the incarnation of the Son of God were not true? The short answer is everything. The church would lose everything if we lost the truth of the Incarnation. Without the Son of God taking on human flesh, we lose the doctrine of God, for we cannot know God rightly without knowing Him through His Son. Without the Incarnation, we lose the doctrine of Scripture, for the Word of God written rests on the reality of the Word of God made flesh. Without the Incarnation, we lose the doctrine of salvation, For only the Son of God in human form is able to provide the righteousness we lack and satisfy the wrath we deserve. 
Without the incarnation, we lose the doctrine of the church, for there can be no body of Christ apart from the person and work of Christ. We would even lose the doctrine of last things, for the second coming of Christ necessitates that He came first as a child in Bethlehem's stable. You see, it is not an exaggeration. I don't like exaggerations. It's not an exaggeration to say that the church would lose everything if the Son of God did not take on human flesh in Jesus Christ. In some sense, friends, this was the problem Paul confronted in the church at Colossae. The Colossians did not fully appreciate the centrality of Jesus Christ. They did not understand that everything, literally everything, as we're going to see, rests on the incarnate Son of God. That's why they entertained the ideas of the false teachers who infiltrated their church. That's why the Colossians toyed around with worshiping angels and trying to save themselves through harsh bodily practices. Why did they do all that? Because they did not grasp the centrality of the Lord Jesus. Their struggle to live for Christ owed to their deficiency in knowing Christ. And that in turn is why Paul writes this letter. Or to be more specific, that's why he writes these particular verses in chapter 1. The goal of these verses is to elevate the Colossians' view of Christ. To raise it up. Make it higher. Paul writes here with a very specific strategy to inform their minds with sound doctrine so that their hearts would then be renewed in worshipful obedience. That's why he starts where he does. The practical instructions come in chapter 3. He starts here in chapter 1 with the sound doctrine. Think of it like a house. In order for the Colossians to build a sturdy house of Christian living, they must first have a solid foundation of truth on which to build. It doesn't do anyone any good to tell them to put off the flesh if they don't understand who Jesus is. That's why Paul starts where he was. That's the foundation they lack to some degree. Paul knows that their foundational problem is an anemic, inadequate view of Jesus. And so he presents to them once again the glorious reality of Christ's person and work. Now before we look at the details of our verses, let me say a little bit about this section of the letter as a whole. You can see verses 15 to 20 there in your Bibles are one sustained paragraph. Scholars sometimes refer to that paragraph as a hymn of praise. A hymn of praise to the Son of God. And there's this large debate about whether or not Paul wrote it or whether or not he adapted it for his purposes. That's really not relevant to the point of the letter. It doesn't really matter whether or not Paul wrote it or adapted it. I think he wrote it, by the way. Because that discussion somewhat obscures the real beauty and the purpose of this section. Here we have some of the clearest teaching in all of the New Testament on who Christ is in Himself and what He does at the cross. I teach through the book of Colossians in the spring at another ministry and I tell people that this is the deep end of the swimming pool when it comes to learning about Jesus in the Bible. This paragraph. This is the most profound you can get about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say all of the New Testament. It's very clear on His person and work. And it begins here in verses 15 and 16 where Paul clearly lays out his theme. That theme, friends, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Why should the Colossians reject the false teachers who minimize Jesus? Because, quite simply, Jesus has unrivaled supremacy 
in and over all things. There is nothing in the universe that can compare to Christ. And therefore, there is nothing else the Colossians need in addition to Christ. Specifically, here in our verses, Paul highlights Christ's supremacy in two areas. Revelation and creation. Christ is the supreme revelation of God's nature. And Christ is the supreme ruler of God's creation. Let's consider both of those magnificent truths together. First of all, Christ is the supreme revelation of God's nature. Verse 15 begins with an incredible statement. Look again at verse 15. Paul writes, He, that is the Son, back from verse 13, He is the image of the invisible God. At this point, Paul is drawing on the Old Testament. Something we'll see he does frequently in this passage. He's drawing on the clear Old Testament teaching that human beings are not able to see God in all of His glory. Think about Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33. Even though Moses spoke to God unlike any other person in human history, Moses did not see God as He is in His glory. Moses even asked God on the mountain, God, please show me your glory. And do you remember what the Lord said? He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. That's the background here to Colossians chapter 1, when Paul speaks of the invisible God. It's not simply that God is spirit and is therefore by definition unseen to human beings. That's true. But Paul's point goes deeper. It's that humanity cannot see God because we are unworthy and unable to do so. Friends, this is why Paul will say later in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that God dwells in unapproachable light. In His nature, God is holy and we by nature are unholy. And therefore, we are unable to approach God. Unable to see Him as He is in Himself. This is also why the Apostle John, in John chapter 1 that we read earlier, John says no one has ever seen God. Think about that, friends. When people make absolute statements, you should be wary of them. But when the Bible makes an absolute statement, you should listen. No one, John says, has ever seen God. He is the invisible God, Paul says in verse 15. Now, before I go on, I want to stress to you that you have to take this limitation seriously or else you will not get verse 15. You have to take the limitation seriously. On our own, we have no ability to know who God is and what He is like. Now, to be sure, all of humanity has ample evidence that God exists. Don't misunderstand me. All of humanity has ample evidence that God exists. Creation. Paul tells us in Romans 1, is a clear and constant testimony that there is a Creator. But knowledge of God as Creator is not enough to sustain us. And neither is it enough to sustain a relationship between Creator and creature. And so, I come back to Paul's point here in verse 15. A point that you have to take seriously. On our own, we cannot see God. We cannot know Him who He is, and what He is like. He is the invisible God. Now, with that limitation in mind, 
Look again at Paul's statement. Verse 15. He, that is the Son, is the image of the invisible God. Friends, that is a statement of revelation. Divine revelation, in fact. As the image of the invisible God, the Son bears the exact representation of the Father's nature. All that is true of the Father is true of His Son. And since the Father is eternally God, so also the Son has eternally imaged His Father. For the Son is Himself God. That's Paul's point here in verse 15. There is a unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. All that is true of the Father is true of His Son. For the Son is His image. And therefore, Paul tells us, it is the Son and the Son alone who can reveal the invisible God to humanity. But here's the connection. Here's the key point, really. How has the Son of God accomplished this work of revelation? We've yet to solve the hurdle of the invisible God, at least on our end. We see the unique relationship between the Father and the Son, but how exactly did the Son reveal the Father? Not through fire and thunder, as at Mount Sinai, a revelation that would lead to terror. Not through vague, mystical visions, a revelation that would lead to misunderstanding. No, the Son of God humbled Himself and revealed the Father by taking on our humanity, our flesh and blood. You see, the incarnation of the Son is the answer to humanity's inability to know God. To our ignorance and our separation from God. Do you see the grace of God here, brothers and sisters? When the invisible God determined to reveal Himself, He did so in a way that we could comprehend. This this is staggering. In a way that we could comprehend. God revealed Himself in a way that was fitting for us feeble and fallible human beings. God revealed Himself by sending His own Son, who is the exact representation of His nature. That alone is staggering. But the Gospel goes farther than that. God sent His Son in our humanity to live and walk among us, to teach with words that we could hear and miracles that we could see, to heal the sick and welcome the little children, to be present in this fallen world, and then to die and rise again to new life in a glorified flesh and blood body. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That's amazing. But that Son has come to us by taking on our humanity, our flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, one of the truths I pray we remember each and every Advent is that to know Jesus Christ is to know the living God as He is. There is no deeper knowledge of God beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep saying this every week, I think. There is no deeper experience of God beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. To know Christ is the pinnacle of divine knowledge. In fact, all of God's attributes, all of God's perfections, all of who God is, is revealed most clearly in Christ. To know Christ by faith is to know God's grace that God took the initiative to come to us, to rescue us when we were hopelessly unable to come to Him. To know Christ by faith is to know God's love that God would give unworthy sinners life 
by giving them Himself. To know Christ by faith is even to know God's provision. That in giving us His Son, God has given us the assurance that having given us Christ, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do you see it? To know Christ is to know the living God as He is. This is stunning. The glory of God that was hidden and revealed in the past has now been fully revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you spend the rest of your days knowing Christ through His Word, then you can be assured that you know the fullness of life with God. Indeed, to know Christ by faith, even today, is to participate already in the eternal life that God has promised to His people. How how can this be? Because Christ is the image of the invisible God. And to know Him by faith is to know the Father of glory. Give yourself then to this pursuit. Give yourself to knowing this Christ. Listen to Paul's nearly unfathomable words in verse 15 and be renewed in your desire to pursue Christ by faith. Pick up God's Word and tell yourself every day, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And this is Christ's Word. And therefore, as I take in His Word, I am communing with the invisible God by faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is an unspeakable privilege. This is unfathomable grace that God would draw near in His Son. And then through that Son, that God would reveal to us His glory. If you are a Christian here today, this is where your life is found. In knowing this Christ by faith. So give yourself to this pursuit. But perhaps you're here this morning and you're not sure if you are a Christian. Sometimes people think they're Christians and they're not. Sometimes people hope that they're Christians and they're not sure. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not sure if you are a Christian. Perhaps you're interested in spiritual things, but you've never been quite certain, actually, if you can know the truth. If that's you, friend, then I would encourage you to consider what Scripture teaches here in Colossians 1. The quest for truth according to the Bible, begins and ends with Jesus Christ. This is actually fundamental to Christianity. This is the starting place, really, for Christianity. Truth is found not inside of us, but outside of us. Truth is found not through our experience of the world, but through God's revelation about the world. Experience is misleading. Jesus never changes. To know God, then, you must come to Him through His Son. For only God can reveal God. Only the infinite can reveal the infinite. To know God, you must come to Him through His Son. And I don't mean this to sound harsh, but if you look for truth apart from Christ, it will be a never-ending quest that simply leaves you lost. Just look around at what the world teaches as spiritual truth. Just just look at what the world teaches as spiritual truth. The only constant in the world's teaching is that it's always changing. That's the only constant. Not so Christianity. Not so the teaching of the Bible. There is only one way to know God. 
But it is a way to know Him through His Son. Through His Son. And the Bible is very clear on this. To know Christ, we must turn from our sin and trust that He alone is able to save. We must turn from our sin and trust that the Son of God came down from heaven to die on a cross and rise again in victory over the grave. So, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a Christian, ask yourself, is Jesus Christ the foundation of my hope to know God or am I trusting in something else? Am I trusting in Christ to bring me to God? Or am I trusting in an experience that I had? Or maybe even a prayer that I prayed at a religious service? Even those kind of prayers are no substitution for Christ. Trust Christ, friends. That's where salvation is found. And I pray that the same God who sent His Son into this world would work even now to give you faith in Christ. So that's the first truth regarding Christ's supremacy. He is the supreme revelation of God's nature, for He is the image of the invisible God. The second truth is closely related to the first, but Paul brings a little different perspective. Christ is the supreme ruler of God's creation. Christ is the supreme ruler of God's creation. If the first half of verse 15 described Christ's unique relationship to God, then the second half of verse 15 describes Christ's unique relationship to the universe that God has made. Notice again what Paul writes. The end of verse 15. He's still speaking about the Son. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, pretty quickly, you'll recognize this calls for careful thinking. We just spent several minutes thinking that thinking about how the Son is Himself fully God. But in the very next phrase, Paul calls that same Son the firstborn of all creation. So how does this work? If the Son is the firstborn, how can He also be fully God? In fact, if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your front door, then you've likely discussed this verse with them. And by the way, I hope they come to your door and I hope you invite them in. They won't come to my house anymore. I didn't make them cry, but I did say some very clear things. They won't come to my house anymore. If a Jehovah's Witness comes to your front door, you've probably talked about this verse. Groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses point to this verse and they say, See, Jesus was not fully God. He was just the first or the most important of all of God's creatures. I mean, it says it right there in the Bible. It says it right there in the Bible. He's the firstborn of all creation. That's what they'll say. They come to your door. But that's not at all what Paul has in mind in verse 15. The term firstborn has nothing to do with origins. Let me just say that again. The term firstborn has nothing to do with origins. Instead, Paul's point is about rank or authority. So a good translation for verse 15 would be to say that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Christ is firstborn over all creation. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that our interpretation is right and their interpretation is wrong? How do we know Paul is thinking of authority rather than origin? Well, the answer, friends, is, again, because of the Old Testament. I hope you see the pattern here. While the apostles lived and wrote in the first century Roman world, 
their worldview was largely formed by the Old Testament scriptures. So it was the Old Testament, even more than Greco-Roman culture, that shaped the New Testament. If you want to know what the apostles were thinking, compare their writings to the Old Testament. In fact, if you just want to know the New Testament better yourself, then read and read and read the Old Testament. It's the key to knowing the New Testament. So when we do that here with Paul in verse 15, we find a fascinating and illuminating connection with the Psalms. Psalm 89, to be exact. So I'm going to talk about Psalm 89 for a second. In that psalm, the psalmist reflects on the relationship between God and Israel's king, who is a descendant of David. But in the psalm, when it was written, the people of Israel were in distress. They were hard-pressed by enemies on all sides. And it looked very seriously as though the Davidic kingdom would cease to exist. In the midst of that distress, however, the psalmist envisions the Davidic king calling out to the Lord God and even calling God his father. Now that connection alone should get your attention, that the Davidic king would relate to God as a son relates to his father. That, that's striking. But it's God's response to the king that illuminates Colossians chapter 1. In response to the king's cry, this is what the Lord God says. This is Psalm 89. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In the Greek Old Testament, firstborn in this psalm is the same word that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 1. You see, he's not thinking about origins in verse 15. The Son has no beginning, for He is Himself eternally God. No, Paul is thinking about Psalm 89. Paul is thinking about God's promise to enthrone His King in the heavens where His King will reign over the entire universe. Indeed, that's Paul's point. Here, Christ reigns over the entire created realm just as God promised He would do in the Old Testament. It's not origin, but rank. It's not origin, but authority. It's not origin, but sovereignty. Just as a firstborn son has the authority over his father's inheritance, so also Christ has the authority over the Father's universe. Now, Paul is not finished with this line of thought. In verse 16, he explains how Christ can reign over the creation. Notice what Paul writes, verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Friends, that's a monumental statement. It was through the Son, Paul says, that the Father created the universe. To use a technical term, the Son was the Father's agent in creation. It was through the Son that the Father's creative power went out into the nothingness and brought into being everything that exists. In fact, Paul's point might actually go a bit farther than that. It was not just that the Father's creative power went out through the Son, but that the Father's creative power was in the Son. So that He created through and in the Son. This is why Paul calls the Son of God the firstborn of all creation. Because by Him and in Him, all things were created. Friends, again, if you think of the Old Testament, you can see how this truth has been present in the Bible from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, how did God create everything? With words. He spoke everything into existence. 
In Psalm 33, how were the heavens created, David asks, by the word of the Lord. Well, when we come to John chapter 1, how does the Apostle John refer to the Son of God as the Word who was with God in the beginning? As the Word who was in fact Himself God. As the Word without whom was not anything made that was made. Do you see then the staggering depth of Paul's teaching? A teaching that's rooted in the Old Testament and now made clear in the New. The Son of God reigns over the creation because amazingly, the Son of God made everything that exists. He made the very world that He would then come into. He made the very womb that He would then inhabit. He made everything. And if Christ made it, then He owns it. And reigns supreme over it. And then Paul makes very clear in verse 16 that there are no exceptions to Christ's reign. Notice the phrases he starts to pile up in the middle of the verse. I don't know if Paul wrote like this, but sometimes I imagine him getting so excited that just words start flowing. He's just piling up phrases. He does it here in verse 16. For by him all things were created... What things, Paul? Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. You see, there are no exceptions. Jesus Christ has no rivals. The mention of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities is most likely a reference to the spiritual powers and the angelic beings of the unseen realm. If you've read through the book of Colossians, then you'll know that the false teachers in Colossae insisted that these kind of powers were far more important than what people thought. They insisted that these kind of angelic beings be at least pacified, if not outright worshipped. That was part of their teaching somehow. But Paul makes clear that even these unseen spiritual powers are under Christ's authority. This is important, friends. Paul does not deny that such beings exist. Paul does not deny the unseen spiritual realm. Rather, Paul puts them in their proper place, under the rule and authority of Christ. And so the application for the Colossians becomes quite clear, doesn't it? Why would you worship something that's less than the God who made it? Why would you devote your life to something that serves the purposes of Christ. It's foolish. Furthermore, there's no need to fear these spiritual powers because Christ has them on a leash, so to speak. They only go and do as Christ allows. That's Paul's point here in verse 16. And listen, this should be a great comfort to us as well. Living in the modern world with all of our crazy invasive, annoying, technological advancements. Living in the modern world, it can be easy to overlook this, but our world is full of spiritual powers at work in the unseen realm. Let me just remind you, friends, that the devil is real. And he is prowling around like the roaring lion. Let me remind you that we are locked in a battle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me remind you, in fact, that there is a sense in which the unseen world is more real and powerful than the visible world. It's enough to make you tremble, isn't it? 
you can understand why so many believers get worked up over things like angels and demons and the specifics and the ins and outs of spiritual warfare. I mean, many folks take that too far, of course. But if you think about the reality of the world according to the Bible, you can understand why. Spiritual powers are real, and it's enough to make you tremble. And yet, what does Paul tell us here? That even those cosmic powers are held in check by the Lord Jesus Christ. That every single spiritual being, whether good or evil, must acknowledge the authority of the Son of God. Again, brothers and sisters, this should be a comfort and a confidence to us. Our lives are not at the mercy of the unseen powers of this age. For the Christian, our master is neither fate, nor karma, nor the devil. Our master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He reigns over all things. And when He says in Matthew 28 that He has all authority, He means it. And so whatever happens to you, in some sense happens under His authority. That doesn't answer all the questions, but surprisingly, the Bible is not all that concerned with answering all your questions. The Bible is concerned with us bowing the knee in submission and faith to the Christ who reigns supreme. Our Lord is Jesus Christ, and He reigns over all things, for He made all things. Friends, I take this as being one of the key biblical prescriptions for living with courage. And the Lord knows we need courage. Have you ever noticed how often the Bible tells Christians to not be afraid? I'm, I'm by nature a very fearful person. Have you ever noticed how often the Bible says, don't be afraid? Why is that? Why does the New Testament so often tell Christians to not be afraid? Well, frankly, it's because the world is a fearful place. And it doesn't do any good to pretend like it's not. The world is a fearful place. How then do we have courage? How then are you not afraid? How do we live without fear in this often fearful world? By understanding these truths about Christ and the world that He's made. It doesn't do any good to tell someone, don't be afraid, it's not scary. It actually is scary. It does help someone to say, don't be afraid, Jesus made all those things. And He reigns over them. When we see Christ for who He is, the sovereign ruler of all creation, then brothers and sisters, we will know that we are secure in Him. Then we will know that our salvation has been accomplished. Then we will live with courage for the sake of the Gospel and for the glory of God. You see, this isn't merely philosophical stuff about good and evil. This is about how the church finds the courage to be on with the mission that Jesus left to us. It comes from seeing Christ as He is. He is supreme over all things, even the powers of of the unseen realm. And therefore, friends, we do not have to be afraid. One more element to Paul's teaching in verse 16 that deserves our attention. It's the last phrase of verse 16. And we're going to, we're going to close with this. Notice where Paul ends. Verse 16. All things were created through Him and for Him. So Paul repeats what he said earlier, that all things were created through Jesus Christ. But then Paul adds a different note. Not only is Christ the one through whom the Father created the universe, but Christ is also the one for whom God created all things. This is essentially the entire, this is the point of the entire book of Colossians. It's really the point of the entire Bible. All things exist for the glory and honor and praise of Christ. 
from the highest mountain peak to the lowest point of the ocean floor, from the mightiest beast to the tiniest molecule, from the greatest empire to the lowliest village to your life and mine, everything exists to bring praise to the sun. Everything. Now we're going to unpack that a little bit more next week, but I want to close with this thought today. If all things exist to bring glory to the Son of God, then using your life to magnify Christ is to join with God in fulfilling the purpose of all creation. Let me say it again. If all things exist to bring glory to the Son of God, then using your life to magnify Christ is to join with God in fulfilling the purpose of all creation. It is never a waste to grow in your knowledge of Christ. It is never a waste to deepen your love for Christ. It is never a waste to labor for the sake of Christ, whether it's in your home or your workplace or halfway around the world on an island of people who have never heard Jesus' name. None of those things is a waste because all things were created for Christ. So I'll close with the same encouragement that I said earlier. Give yourself to this pursuit. Give yourself to knowing this Christ and making Him known. He is supreme in that He reveals the Father to us. He is supreme in that He reigns over the universe. He is supreme and all things exist for Him. So, brothers and sisters, may we join with God in this grand work of fulfilling the purpose for which He made everything to bring glory to the Son. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to just take a few brief moments and focus our hearts and minds on the Lord Jesus Christ. We could, we could think and speak and write for hours, days, years, and we would never get to the bottom of all of the glory that dwells in Him. God, please take our meager efforts today and multiply them in Your bountiful provision. Please take our humble attempts to understand the things of God and bring about a harvest that is much greater than the seed that we have sown even now. God, please work a mighty work of faith in us as we consider the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to just settle for small things. We don't want to live lives that are primarily about ourselves. Help us, God. Help us. Oh, how we need Your help to use our lives to know Christ and to make Him known. Do this in our church, Father. Oh, how we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.